What is occurring today is a movement to get the thousands of physician offices and hospital systems that have implemented electronic health records to find a way to communicate in a common language in the internet economy. Today we're talking about data liberation with Anish Chopra, president of Care Journey and former chief technology officer for the United States. Anish will be leading a main stage session at this year's Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Summit about how data is very valuable with incredible potential. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication at health.oliverwyman.com. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Tom Robinson. I'm a partner in the health and life sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, we're speaking with Anish Chopra, president of Care Journey, who once served as the former and the very first U.S. chief technology officer. Anish is author of Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government, and is also a keynote speaker at this year's Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Summit in Dallas. We recently sat down and chatted on the idea of data sharing in healthcare, and I wanted our audience to hear Anish's exciting view. Anish, thanks very much for joining us today. Tom, thanks for having me. Why don't we start by talking about a topic that's all over the news, Apple Health. How is the Apple Health movement scaling to benefit everyone, um, not just pure health consumers? Yeah, I, uh, I, I will admit at the front end that I'm a fanboy. I'm an Apple products user myself, and so I might have clouded vision on some of this given my passion. But uh, in all seriousness, what is occurring today is a movement to get the thousands of physician offices and hospital systems that have implemented electronic health records to find a way to communicate in a common language in the internet economy. And what Apple Health has done is committed that anybody that wishes to communicate with Apple must do so through the same open, common language that the broader healthcare delivery system is working towards, not just to empower consumers, but to help physicians, care teams, and others better manage a patient's care. So in many ways, the key benefit we're seeing with Apple Health is a very strong demand signal for open, standards-based health information exchange. And that backed up with policies that mandate, to some degree, uh, there be a common uh, language or common mechanism to communicate health information on the internet. You have the beautiful public-private partnership that's not limited to Apple. The reason it's exciting is that by embracing an open standard, the next application, whether it be something built by Google, Microsoft, a startup, a big healthcare delivery systems, internal teams, all of them can use the exact same infrastructure without incurring marginal cost. The premise is an open plug-and-play ecosystem that allows us to substitute 
Apple Health with other applications. And it was Apple's management decision to embrace this open standard versus a specific Apple connector that is what's given me great hope for the rest of the industry. And how much traction do you think they're getting? Well, the great news is, in the spirit of transparency, Apple has published a list of every health system, physician office, etc., that has already connected and gone through a conformance testing process to validate that it meets the specifications. And since they announced the program in January earlier of this year, the idea of Apple Health, and since it's become live, we're looking at hundreds of systems that are up and running today. And given the pace, my presumption is that the vast majority, 80 plus percent of hospitals, mostly hospitals, physicians' offices will be a slightly lagging indicator, but that the hospital side, we will see convergence to be able to communicate with Apple Health by this time next year. And that's a phenomenal rate of adoption, not specific to Apple, but the capacity to communicate with Apple or that proverbial second or third app that may come behind it. And and is it Fire that's making all of this possible? And could you just touch on that for our listeners? Yes. And so I was careful not to dive into the technical specifications per se, but thank you for the the invitation. So HL7 largely has been our industry's community of record when it comes to standards. HL7 messages are what drive most communications today between health systems and third parties inside the organizations. And and thankfully, we have a a community of stakeholders committed to standards-based health information exchange. About eight or so years ago, there was a healthy debate, uh, not just, uh, you know, in the United States, but frankly, globally, about how we might make the standards that were built decades ago ready for the internet era. And an Australian by the name of Graham Greve chose to organize a coalition of the willing to design HL7 standards in this new era. And so what came out of that effort was a, a, a framework, the Fast Health Interoperability Resources, or FIRE. And that framework is now really uh, scaled at a level that even I would imagine Graham would be shocked by. Within a few short years, Epic and Cerner and Athena and McKesson and Allscripts voluntarily agreed that they would use that foundation uh, to meet the government's requirements, what was then called meaningful use and is now uh, promoting interoperability. So we had an early coalition of EHR vendor adoption. Then you had the Apple News in January that it would embrace the Fire API. And then you may have read that in August of this year, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, IBM, Salesforce, Oracle, among others, committing to the same common language of Fire to communicate health information on the internet. That is an unprecedented amount of convergence on a technical standard. And I'd say it's less about whether the particular code base is better or worse than alternatives, but more that there's at least a standard and that there's an industry acceptance to work towards making it work. That to me is what's exciting about the Fire API. It is, there's no Betamax VHS debate in healthcare moving forward. 
healthcare internet standards will be built on fire and will scale to meet more use cases, starting with consumer access and rapidly evolving to reducing physician burden, promoting care coordination and care management, to population health writ large, and who knows any number of genomics or other personalized medicine use cases down the road. That's what's exciting, Tom. And I like the way you, you, you broadened it out from the technical detail into like, what does it mean for consumers? It seems like with a with 100 health systems on this, with, with physician groups coming on board, there's going to be a tremendous impact. Can you say a little bit more about how it will impact, what the, da- the great data liberation will, will bring? Yeah. So look, to me, Tom, there are, I always think in threes, but the first step for me is my mom and dad are on Medicare. I have a bit of an anxiety to make sure that I'm on top of their health conditions. And to the extent that they see multiple doctors, I would like the ability to have a single way to organize their records. And what this movement is allowing me to do is to organize that information in a much more seamless fashion than my printing and stapling and manually recording information as I've had to do in the years past. So for consumers, this means easier aggregation of your health information for your own purpose, but also to share with people whom you trust and potentially physicians that might treat you in the future. So that's step one. Step two, I believe it's going to help patients because this means that applications now run by their physicians might have access to information that were not historically available to them at the point of care. And that, not just raw data, but often an insight. Oh, uh, make sure you ask Anisha's mom about her uh, wellness visit. She hasn't scheduled it this year and she's up for renewal. So these types of decision support tools aiming uh, at physicians and potentially uh, care management teams, this is a second chapter that has me excited. It means uh, we're going to start to see a little bit more creativity around the use of data, not so much investments in getting the data. And then last but not least is a bit of the future. I'm hopeful that now in my opinion, we're going to start to see this data flow to the cloud in a much faster clip, whether there be data warehouses in the cloud or applications that are consumer or physician facing in the cloud. But as applications migrate to the cloud and data models migrate to the cloud, we have opportunities to apply all of the modern techniques, machine learning, and a whole range of other tools facilitating better prediction on decline in health status, better workflow improvement opportunities to make sure that when you, your loved one leaves the hospital and is going home, that they already have a, a visit scheduled with their primary care doctor to explain all the medications. And so that type of intelligent uh, information architecture, that may be the third step of this that will frankly, be built not because of fire per se, because fire enabled the data to move to a modern stack, which then could be used in all the ways that entrepreneurs and innovators are are looking to do to make healthcare better. And and who do you, it it looks like a bright future with all of that data finally available for, for analysis and available for kind of proactive treatment and prevention. Who do you think the winners and the losers will be in this, um, 
in, in this new environment? Risk-bearing entities will generally be in a position to benefit the most. If we start with the proposition that there's way too much unwarranted clinical variation in the American healthcare delivery system, that is to say, we could do less but actually achieve better results. If you come in with that bias, that's my bias. I'm presuming you might have a similar bias and the commitment to uh, choosing wisely or other various iterations of that movement then organizations who stand to operationalize this uh, move to value equipped with all of this information infrastructure are likely to be the ones on the front lines of benefiting. Obviously, patients will benefit, but financially in the way of our complicated healthcare delivery system, it's that risk-bearing entity that will accrue some of that uh, advantage. Organizations that are largely on the defense uh, hoping that their planning forecasts for available beds uh, hold up in a world where uh, physicians taking risk uh, start to organize a bit better to reduce that unnecessary utilization. Y you would hope the institutions that are prepared uh, for that future are uh, not going to be caught flat-footed, in which case they might find themselves, quote-unquote, a loser. But uh, perhaps if everybody... Uh, embraces this movement, we might find ourselves right managing, if you will, right sizing, if you will, the delivery system such that fewer uh, utilization rates per the population in a world where we're seeing 10,000 more seniors enrolled in Medicare a day, we might thread the needle and, and, and maintain uh, kind of the integrity of the delivery system, but one that's got more value created for each dollar of capital deployed. Right. And I see this as a great leveling of the playing field, like those organizations with significant pools of data today, where they might have castle walls around the data, they, they now other, other new entrants will have the same ability to access vast pools of data, perhaps even greater, uh, to a gr even to a greater degree, which I think makes for a more competitive landscape. That is the open question of the day, Tom. That is technically correct. There will be buttons one can push to move data from entity A to B. An organization that spent ungodly amounts of money trying to amass and normalize large volumes of data isn't all that excited to be able to, with a push of a button, move all of that data to a potential competitor or even a collaborator to use and monetize in a way that the initial party, you know, hadn't really envisioned. So there's going to be, you know, in the government, uh, I used to do a lot of work on international trade in the technology space. There was a term for this called non-tariff trade barrier. Uh, Tom, we may find ourselves swimming in non-tariff uh, data exchange barriers. That is to say, the IT infrastructure will be known the software deployed at each of these facilities will have the capacity. That last step of push and go might involve uh, these non-tariff trade barriers, uh, which may take the form of anti-competitive behavior or other risk aversion, perhaps. Uh, we will start to see a different muscle reaction and we got to be vigilant about that. And I think that's a lot of what's animating the Trump administration's approach to information blocking. And so we're all anxiously awaiting how they come down. 
on those non-technical trade barriers to get to that vision you just outlined. Exactly. And I think, um, you know, government clearly plays a role here. Um, the other part, it strikes me, is that half the people in this country are still covered by private insurance with employers playing a, a huge role in all of that. Do you think do you think they have something to say here? And do you think they can help accelerate this this future? Oh, my goodness, yes. And I am so hopeful to uh, reach out to that community in a bigger way because so much of this is about offense versus defense. You know, uh, Tom, one small vignette. I was Virginia's Secretary of Technology under Governor Tim Kaine. And right after President Bush had issued an executive order uh, under Secretary Levitt's leadership to move to value-based care, we effectively replicated that very same executive order and with Governor Levitt's uh, appearance alongside Governor Kane in a real spirit of bipartisanship made the statement that state employees, we wanted to drive value-based care for state employees. To make a long story short, uh, the uh, insurance company that had supported the state employees, you might guess who it is, but out of respect and out of just courtesy, I won't go too deep on the details, effectively said uh, we were looking to decouple the data from the contract, meaning if you could process the claims, we wanted to repurpose the data, potentially hire a different firm to make use of that data for better customer uh, satisfaction, customer routing. And basically, we got a, I wouldn't call it a cease and a desist letter. That may sound a little bit too legalistic, but the letter was, you know, we are not sharing that data. That's not your intellectual property. That's ours. Even though you were paying the bills and your governor signed an executive order to move to value. And so that mindset uh, really stalled us as an employer. We tried to move forward. I had just at that time left to go to the Obama administration to serve as chief technology officer. So I think we went live for 90 days attempting to build this sort of value-based care model into the state employee program. And because of the failures of implementation on a number of fronts, we turned it off, uh, you know, right after the thing had even started. And I think the mindset's changed since then, Tom. This is like 06, 07. No, no, this is 08, 09. Forgive me. And uh, now I think there's a more accepting culture that this type of information is not to be hoarded, but is to be made available. And in fact, I can't wait to see this. The Trump administration's even gone further to say that Medicare Advantage plans have to disclose uh, similar information to uh, consumers in the form of that same Fire API. So long story short, you asked me about employers. I am hopeful employers will follow CMS's lead and say, you know what? Now that we're going into this contract phase, we're going into open enrollment, we want to make sure that every employee can exert their right to access and use their health information. And in our case, it's paid claims. It might involve other information, but that that should be a clause in every contract vehicle, if not this year, then hopefully next year, because we've got to get this all hands on deck approach to not only upgrade the technology, but ensure that it's being used to its fullest extent to hopefully uh, assist people navigate this very complicated delivery system. Yeah, I think if you're a, a mid-sized employer, this is perhaps, you know, 
not your core business. But if you're a large jumbo employer, then absolutely, how on earth do you manage the health of your population without getting access to the data? They should be pushing hard on this. And I'm pleased to see, I'm pleased to be in more and more conversations with jumbo employers where they are making those uh, those requirements um, from their insurance and administrative partners. I'm glad you're seeing it, Tom. I, that's, I'm not close to that side of the world. So if that is something you're seeing, that's excellent news, Tom. I think very important at this stage in the game. One, just to change a topic slightly at the moment, it's something linked. When you look at um, payment reform, what do you think are some of the biggest payment reform breakthroughs that we, that we could expect? Well, let's start with what's already in the literature as having worked. Uh, activating uh, primary care physicians, uh, whether they are officially independent or can govern as an independent-like entity regardless of ownership, a very motivated primary care group taking on total cost of care risk absolutely can demonstrate improvements in outcomes at lower cost. That's the great news. We know already this model, uh, at least animating primary care as quarterback, is working. We could do more to tweak the model. You'll see something around direct primary care. But the basic principle here is the anchor of this movement, where the data suggests there's been success, are these um, motivated physician groups. So that's build on progress there. We're also seeing similar success in aligning incentives between specialists, health systems, post-acute facilities when you organize bundles of care. So if we can look at the models that have been successful, specialist bundles combined with total cost of care, primary care, there's now a lot we can work with to build on that progress. So to me, there are a few steps along the way that are yet to be experimented. Uh, probably the most uh, obvious or perhaps uh, one that we may be excited about the prospects of is to invoke more support for those organizations willing to take total cost of care, moving further and further down that capitated dollar. And it'll take multiple flavors and forms, but it might involve some marriage of Medicare Advantage features, Medicare fee-for-service features, designed to align the incentives of a larger population. And that's where we might see some very exciting, uh, uh, promising areas. Employers and commercial plans piling on to the bundles logic probably is an obvious place next. And there's one that's maybe a bit further out, but worth considering. And that is really designing a payment reform model where patients or consumers are right in the middle of the arrangement. And that may take the form of opting in to value-based care models, benefiting from participation in the network, and a whole range of other things that have only been barely tested uh, but, but have potential if, if we can equip people and the people who love them with information to, to more effectively navigate the system. What's, what sort of things are you thinking about? Like creating some form of financial responsibility for consumers once they've moved beyond their out-of-pocket max, this type of thing? is, is... Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe I would be a little bit more refined in my comment here. Let me take a step back. Uh, 
Tom, in the transition from pension plans to 401ks, we democratized access to financial services, essentially. And what it did was give rise to a new muscle in the economy, some type of a fiscal uh, fiduciary. And that gave rise to Vanguard, Fidelity, and a whole range of other organizations whose sole mission was to onboard individuals who shared their goals, shared their data, and together built a plan that's in the best interest of the customer. And that organization had a reward, collect management fees, perhaps some other aspect of remuneration. So when I talk about this model that's not yet developed, what I'm thinking about is less about the individual taking more responsibility, but rather the incentives that might accrue not just to their physician or their health system or their bundles convener, but to the health information fiduciary, the next generation of a Vanguard or a Fidelity that's built around health that I trust to help me navigate this complicated system. Uh, I, I was part and parcel of a group that the Commonwealth Fund convened over the last couple of years, and they gave the name of this a digital health advisor, an entity that you entrust with all of your data feeds that's equipped with all the decision support logic to help route you at every step of your healthcare journey. And so organizations that might perform that function, today it's sort of a public good, right? Apple Health is a data repository. It may or may not result in applications that are connected to Apple Health that help you make sense of it. But whatever the future holds, Tom, it may be incentives for that partner to assist me in routing through the system, reminding me to get the wellness visit, reminding me to get a care transition visit when I'm discharged from the hospital and I'm going home, but I'm confused about the drugs in the box at home and the drugs that they gave me at the hospital and so forth. That to me is this uh, frontier. Who do you think's best place to, um, to 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 build those types of capabilities? Is it is it the the players we were mentioning before, the tech giants, or, or is it the the alignments of this world who are who are deep into the healthcare space? Yeah. So I uh, thankfully it's not me. I'm not in that world. I'm not going to be uh, a health information fiduciary. Uh, but I have this. Let all players come. My instinct is they're going to have the following properties. Property number one, they're going to earn the trust of the consumer. Today, trust is earned largely by the primary care physicians, maybe the health systems writ large, uh, maybe the local pharmacy, uh, probably not the health plan, but maybe, and uh, maybe the, uh, uh, the kind of the retail technology giants that we know and trust you know, Amazon Prime or whatever. So there's a list of, of, of trusted uh, front doors that we may choose to walk in. By the way, it might be a retail entity like a, a Walgreens or a Walmart, uh, if I didn't mention them earlier. Or a CVS. Or a CVS. Thank you for bringing that up, of course. So there's that, that sort of principle number one is they're going to have trust in the mix. Principle number two, it's inevitable that they will be using some modern cloud-based infrastructure and probably competing on, you know, a technology component that is 
brought to bear and the assistance of the navigation process. So you, you know, thank you, You've, I've earned your trust, provide me your data, I'm gonna do something meaningful with it and help you make a decision. I better know what I'm doing, so there's probably gonna be some tech component. I'm not so sure the tech giants need to be the first party here to be the ones that get the trust. They're probably competing to be the back end in order to uh, be the, the, the guts, if you will, the, the infrastructure for a health information fiduciary apps economy. And then the third and the most obvious point, they're gonna be fire first. They're gonna be the ones driving that last mile of connectivity. By the way, not just connectivity to the EHRs, that's too narrow a way to think about this, but in states that are requiring Medicaid uh, uh, beneficiaries to uh, 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 file for work permits, They'll probably connect to uh, the workforce systems in the state so that your trusted uh, information fiduciary might help you report all the details that need to be done or to support you in finding job opportunities or tasks in the era of Uber drivers or, for that matter, training opportunities which qualify. So this may be bigger than just a narrow clinical decision support service. I've got this in my head of a digital health and social benefits navigator that, that traverses the public, the private, the nonprofit sectors, and provides you the kind of real-time decision support to live a better life. I love this whole idea of the, the health data fiduciary and this health digital navigator. And I was going to ask you earlier about how you thought all the data that we've been talking about becomes actionable. And, and it's a fascinating future that some of the way in which it could become actionable is through these automated agents that start nudging people towards the right behaviors, providing them with the right data and the right decision-making capabilities. Yes, and it could be automation to the consumer, but it also could be decision support to the care teams or the physicians. If you ask the average uh, care management enterprise, you know, what percentage of the calls are you placing to the consumer or fielding from the consumer, that ratio, whatever that ratio is, may skew a lot more to outbound calls if it doesn't already, right? So a hospital's call center is fielding, you know, hey, I'd like to schedule a, an appointment with Dr. Smith. So they're probably getting a lot of inbound volume. Uh, they're probably not making a lot of outbound calls. But now if you combine that customer service role plus a care management role, and you just sort of aggregated up all the touch points between the patient and the delivery system, the ratio of patient initiated to system initiated will probably flip. And these technologies will probably animate the basis for why they're flipping. Uh, bring it on. Um, I think one last question for you, Anish, and we ask this of all of our podcast guests. If you had no limitations on resources, money or talent, and the sky was the limit, what would you fix about healthcare? Yeah, so I, I, my, I, I'll answer this in two parts, and thank you for the question. I, I would kind of build on what we're talking about here, kind of a GPS router for healthcare delivery. You know, I, I have access to the national CMS data, and so we're benchmarking delivery systems all over the country. And it's so depressing to me, Tom, how rarely consumers navigate in the manner that at least the research community believes they should whether that means getting their flu shots if they need it or getting their blood sugars checked regularly or 
uh, having their uh, wellness visits or, or, or all, all the things that, that are in the delivery system today, reimbursed by the way, paid for, but not utilized. It's a really sad, we're not at the 90% getting to 100. We're like at the 12, 15, 18% trying to move up the, the stack. And so that tells me that there's a lot more than technology at play. So while I would like to have a GPS system as the thing that with unlimited money I'd like to build that helps people, you know, imagine, ask your doctor about X, Y, Z. Uh, I also think there's a more fundamental limitless investment around culture change. And, and that to me is, uh, I would say, the most important issue that we face is the notion that we've got this incremental mindset and that's not my role mindset or I assume somebody else would do that mindset or I've got litigation concerns, whatever it may be. It's, it's something in the delivery system culture that for whatever reason doesn't translate into making sure patients get all the things that we know. Forget the unknown, machine learning, future diagnoses, genomic profiling, forget all that. The stuff that we know, I don't remember the headline, uh, Tom, but in, in July or August, uh, in JAMA, there was a study that showed if patients discharged from the hospital and went home and got a doctor to perform a care transition visit, a transitional care management service, the uh, costs post 30 to 60 days were down 11% and mortality uh, dropped, uh, the rate of, uh, the risk of mortality dropped 0.6. And the headline was something like the greatest care intervention that nobody's using. At the time the, rep the writers uh, wrote the study, it was something like 7.5% of patients had had access to that service. So, you know, that's culture. I don't know what you could put a price tag on what it takes to change culture, uh, but that's that's really the hard hard road ahead of us. Well, Anish, thanks so much for joining us today on Oliver Wyman Health. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting, and I look forward to seeing you in Dallas. Thank you. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.